Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 3, Episode 2 Ennerdale Bridge to Rothswaite Far below, I was surprised to see a busy road cut through Honister Pass. The narrow road was clogged with traffic greatly in excess of that for which it was designed. All too soon we were back in civilization and starting the long descent along a narrow, straight stony path following a disused quarry tramway to a working slate quarry below. The mine is still active, offering tours of underground workings. The car park was jam-packed. Long-faced tourists milled about in the gloomy, drizzle-soaked forecourt or warmed themselves in the souvenir shop. All was bleak, bare and grey-black. Some may think the ideal setting for sculpturing gravestones to order. I like rocks. For many years, the occupation nominated in my passport was geologist, even though I'm a chartered mechanical engineer. At the time, I was working for a French company as a mudlogger in oil exploration. My employer's Gallic rules was designed to facilitate easy access to oil-producing countries. Part of my job was to monitor, classify, and chart the rock types and other data as drilling progressed. My interest in rocks and lifelong enthusiasm for the arts evolved into a pleasurable pastime of sculpting sandstone, something I still enjoy. It's odd, when on a long journey, just how strong the impulse to keep moving can become. My wish to examine the massive slabs of slate at the mine site gave way to a compulsion to keep plodding on, and so the opportunity was foregone. Unfortunately, the path followed the congested road along the southern slope of Seatola Fell. Even though I tried to ignore the stinking exhaust from the noisy snarl of slow-moving traffic, the irritating and insistent beeping from the horn of a small car was too much. I whipped around to shout abuse at the offending motorist. <laughs> and there was Colleen's smiling face. She was ensnarled in the traffic and unable to stop. She glided slowly past, wreathed in the contented grin that suggested calm, comfort, and cordiality. Her wrinkled brow of Lakeland Road Rage, made smooth by the soothing charm of a Mozart clarinet quartet. The trail veered away from the road, leaving behind the misery of Lakeland holiday traffic. Soon we were strolling across the clear hillsides, with only the black-faced Suffolk sheep and the silent fells for company. Alas! The serenity of our walkabout solitude was short-lived. The first signal of its intrusive closeness was the thwacking throb of the rotor. The military helicopter, with its underslung load, clattered into view before banking to disappear behind the yellow peak of Broad Haystack. The helicopter may have been on a supply run to a surface-to-air missile battery hidden deep in the mountains as front-line defence for Sellafield. A sudden squall caught the trees of Johnny Wood, thrashing branches with the semaphore signal, Here comes the rain, to those that knew the code. The gusty tailwind lifted the heavy load of a fellow trekker who flapped along the path behind. He wallowed like an overstuffed scarecrow that had broken loose from its stake and was making hard work of the getaway. This was our second encounter with the flat-capped kiwi we'd met on the beach at St. Bees. He was an opportunist who had booked no accommodation and relied upon guile and bushcraft to see him through. In keeping with his countryman's love of the outdoors, he was no doubt hoping to be turned away from lodgings and condemned to sleep rough, only to be caught in an icy deluge at 3 a.m. To add extra spice to his corner, 
he had neither guidebook nor map to encumber his intuitive navigational skills. The Kiwi appeared to employ the homing pigeon technique, whereby a small hunk of iron inside the skull kept his head swivelled round to face magnetic north. Last night at Ennerdale Water it was getting dark and I had nowhere to stay, he said. A sympathetic farmer took pity on me and let me sleep in the barn. Well, strike me blue if I didn't have to share the barn with a large, friendly lady who fed me and plied me with drink, he boasted, strutting like a peacock. And all that for only five quid, he drawled, swaggering with the self-satisfaction of a big prize lotto winner. His journey had been far more exciting than ours. Not only had the gods smiled on him at Ennerdale Water, but whilst tramping towards Rothwaite, he'd become euphoric with the challenge of being lost not once, but twice. On the first occasion, he'd nearly walked over a sheer cliff. The circus didn't stop there. His suicide attempt at flying came to nothing when he was forced to jettison a golfing umbrella that had blown inside out by the fierce updraft off the precipitous Raven's Crag. Had the ribs on the umbrella been stronger, the sheer force of the gusting vortex could easily have carried him over the edge. It's hard to imagine a more incongruous sight than the overloaded Kiwi clutching his golf umbrella, Mary Poppins style, fluttering through the air to certain doom a thousand feet below. Whilst Peter and I were weighing up the treacherous grab chain across the rocky face above Nickel Dud Stream, our Kiwi mate gave the matter not a second thought. In his determination to secure digs at Longthwaite YHA Hostel, he plunged straight through the water like a dog fetching a stick. My final impression of him was that of a wildly surging square rigger, running before a storm, all sheets to the wind. He heaved onward and lurched through the troughs between the trees with the erratic confidence attributed only to those with a precise fix on magnetic north. By the time we arrived at Rothwaite, it was dark and we were damp. The busy main road dog-legged around houses that jutted out at odd angles. I have little doubt that two thousand years ago any Roman civil engineer proposing such a dangerous design would have had to defend his plan in the gladiatorial pit. In Rothwaite, most motorists gave the impression of being gifted with second sight. They whizzed around the blind bends between houses with what appeared to be absolute assurance that nothing was coming the other way. The unexpected nearness of a double-decker tourist bus zooming around those narrow roads was something that those with even a mild heart condition should avoid. I later learned that Colin had been forced off the road by an oversized double-decker bus thrashing along an otherwise quiet country back road. When we arrived at the hotel, Colleen had already organised our accommodation. Colleen and Peter had an ensuite room in Merry Beaches, the newly converted barn nestling quietly behind the hotel alongside the river. I was billeted in the original 18th century building, overlooking the busy road and the swinging sign for the Royal Oak Hotel in which we were lodging. I felt isolated and deprived in the room without TV or wireless. Also, there was a distinct absence of conviction to the hotel's claim that William Wordsworth slept here in any way referred to my room. My accommodation was, however, superior in one respect. It was very near the exit door, so in case of emergency, I would be one of the first to dash to safety. The fire exit led to the outside and provided access to the boiler room where wet clothes were hung to dry. Regrettably, there was no remaining space to hang our wet clothes, so I was required to drape them about my small room in the hope they'd dry before morning. 
Unfortunately, the frequently used fire door slammed closed automatically with a thunderous bang that jarred the nerves and unsettled my disposition. But with one thing and another, I felt as though I had drawn a short straw, and with that a mood of gloominess floated in and took control. Even though the day was dull, damp and dismal, the walking had been exciting, the weather exhilarating and the landscape spectacular. In truth, that evening the best place for me was indoors, loosening joints in a deep bubble bath. After twenty minutes' rejuvenation, I emerged from the tub like a slab of poached salmon, pink and wrinkly, all misery sluiced down the plug hole. The small bar at the Royal Oak was windowless and appeared crowded with just a handful of patrons. They put me in mind of a tight-knit group of soaks huddled together in the back room of their local pub for an after-hours lock-in. Alone, I went next door to the Scarfell Hotel, where they served real ale. The public bar was warm and spacious, but maintained a friendless air and detached sterility. The hotel dining room had the reputation for fine food. I lived in the hope that the bar food came from the same kitchen. I selected a quiet corner with a good view of the public bar where I could contentedly sip an excellent pint of black sheep bitter. I nodded hello to a fellow walker recognised from somewhere along the way. He was taking great pleasure in picking through a grilled trout. His obvious enjoyment was recommendation enough for me. The Dutch girls burst into the bar like cowgirls come to town looking for a good time. I was pleased when they joined me for a drink. It was hilarious turning over the events of the day, and they were gracious enough to feign shock at the confessions of a poached salmon wrinkly. We were about to order trout when Peter arrived. What are you doing here? Dinner's being served right now, he said. Then understanding my confusion, the royal oak is dinner, bed and breakfast. We'll be back later, I promised the Dutch girls, as I left hot on Peter's heels. Back at the Royal Oak, a squeeze of slow-motion elderly guests funneled into the dining room. I took advantage of the congestion and bought a bottle of Chilean red wine to have with the meal. Peter, Colleen and I had been allocated a corner table. Being there first, Peter and Colleen had selected the seats for the backs of the wall, offering the best position to view the goings-on. My view was of Peter and Colleen eating, and like Shirley Valentine, the wall. The Royal Oak is a hospitable family hotel, old-fashioned and welcoming to all ages. The dyers were a mixed mob, but made up mainly of the elderly. Three Margaret Rutherford lookalikes tottered in and sat at the next table. I was heartened to see how patient and considerate they were to one another. It was good to be reminded of values neglected or forgotten in the hurly-burly of a frantic, self-centred life. The dinner was of substantial country fare, minestrone soup, Cumbrian roast ham, with the biggest baked potato I'd ever seen. And to finish off, pear bakewell tart. Coffee was served in a lounge, so the dining room could be set for breakfast and the schoolgirl waitresses could leave in time to do their homework. A party of Tweedy types had purloined the closed lounge, filling the air with laughter and a clink of wine glasses. The open lounge was a very different affair. It was furnished in a wide variety of seating styles that were arranged facing inwards with the seat backs against the walls. Of the ten or so spaces, all were occupied, save for three, which we took. I'd no sooner sat down than sensed an aura of dogged conformity that held those present hushed and motionless. Most were solitary elderly souls, isolated and insulated from those around. 
They were totally engaged with what they were doing, and paid no heed to anything else. Each was engrossed in reading, solving crosswords, or some other newspaper puzzle. The husband, of a couple sitting on the couch, was reading a fine print paperback. I was peeved to note that although a good deal older than me, he was able to read small print in poor light without the aid of spectacles. A chorus of throat-clearing coughs and the furious flourishing snap of broadsheet newspapers pushed our conversation. Aged bottoms fidgeted on flattened cushions, and heads bowed low so eyes could scan the room over half-moon glasses. We had inadvertently intruded upon the silent room, where the elderly sat close together in crowded isolation with newspapers, books, and their own pulse for company. Before finishing our coffee, three white-haired ladies arrived and became highly indignant to find there were no seats left. "'Our seats have been taken!' they exclaimed in unison. That utterance and the sense of violation that emanated from the cloying cloud of lavender toilet water in which they moved was our signal to retreat. We offered our seats to the old ladies, who graciously accepted, then barged forward, elbowing us out of the way in a determined effort to reinstate the proper order of things. Bloodied but not crushed, we retreated to the Scarfell Hotel for our nightcap, where we joined the Dutch girls and laughed our way to closing time. Back at the Royal Oak, my bedroom resembled a Dickensian washerwoman's kitchen, with damp clothes strung out like coronation bunting. With the fire exit door stopped, stilled and silent, I slipped into bed and pressed deep into the mattress under the weight of an enormous baked potato. I slept in blissful oblivion.